I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I don't think the issue is liberal arts education, not liberal arts education. I think the issue is how do you take the, the great aspects of liberal arts education, like understanding the context in which we live, understanding the aesthetics, understanding how to write, how to communicate. Those things are all going to be hyper-relevant uh, to everybody. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today's guest is Jonathan Aberman, old friend of the show. In fact, he started the show and handed it off to me. He's the dean now at Marymount University's School of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology and here in Arlington, Virginia. We talk about what education costs, what it's worth, and what you should expect from it. What are the outcomes of a degree, undergraduate, graduate? How much focus should it have? Does it apply to the job you have and make it better? Does it help you get a better job in a new area you don't know about? These are the unanswerable and interesting questions we discuss because guess what? What it means to go to college and university today ain't the same as what it used to be. What's the bang for the buck you should expect and how should you pursue that? Here's our conversation. Jonathan, welcome to the show again. It's good to see you, Mark, and um, I like what you've done with the place. <laughs> As they say, in Fairfax, Virginia, specifically the dean of BUILT. It stands for Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology. That's a cool title for a business school. It is. It's a cool title, but we're not a business school. We're a business, computer science, and art and design college, and that is the big thing. That's what's really different about what we're doing vis-a-vis other places, we decided a number of years ago that the future of work required that people had multidisciplinary skills. Right. So that's why Marymount merged the three pre-existing schools together into one college. I think it's it's pretty unique. And by the way, we're in Arlington, not Fairfax. Just uh, I was just testing know, you. Yeah. Arlington we're we're the, actually the only university based in Arlington. Others, interlopers have come in, but we're yeah. the only ones that are that actually are Arlington's uh, university. Well, let's talk about the merger of those quote-unquote silos. And as you know, I, you and I have both had many interactions with higher educational institutions. Now you're now you're on a you know at a, at a platform as a dean at at one here in the D.C. area. What was it like to get those quote silos unquote kind of together? How hard is it? Well, it, hard is always going to be dependent upon whether or not your your people want to change the way they work. Right. You know, and any merger in business, and many of your listeners have more experience merging companies or being at a company that's been merged. It's always about two things. It's about the business model and it's about the people. So the business model is, does it make sense to bring different units or companies together to combine into a new business model? And the second is, do the people want to participate? Because anytime you combine operations, folks are going to worry about, well, what does it mean for me? Right. Now, Marymount's a very interesting place as an institution, and I think we'll talk about this many universities are right now, which is the world is changing dramatically. So a place like Marymount that has a fine reputation as being a great liberal arts university in a world where technology and innovation is becoming much more prevalent, had to figure out how it participated in that market. And that's really what the built merger was about. But the reason why it worked in, in my situation is because fundamentally you had a group of professors that decided that they wanted to do something different. And when you have a group of people that want to do something different, anybody who comes in as a change agent like myself has a much easier job mm -hmm. because people have already decided they want to do something different. They just want to know what. 
So anybody who comes on your show and talks about a merger, ultimately what it's going to be is do you get buy-in from people? And the biggest challenge you have more broadly as we pull back and talk about education is in education right now, so many things are changing, but it's a business model that's relying upon professors, and professors have a lot of, a lot of autonomy. No. Well, do yeah. you tell. Well, it's a business model that's based upon getting really, really intelligent people and giving them academic uh, independence and then asking them to change their business model. And a right. lot of institutions of higher education have a heck of a time. You know, the newspaper's full of them because a lot of professor groups don't want to change. Or I would argue or suggest that they don't like the phrase business model being applied to what they do. Well, I think that's true, and I can understand that since I, I – Cross both lines, having right. been a VC and also being in academia. The, the issue, though, is, is that when business people talk about business model, what we're really talking about is gathering resources to deliver something that's valuable. It's a shorthand we use. Nice. So when you and I are on a not-for-profit board, for example, I know that we will say, hey, what's the business model? What we mean is, how do you get enough donors excited to give you money, or how can you go get grants? It's it's the circle of cash. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't think that when most business people come into an academic setting, they're actually suggesting that education isn't value-driven about making the world better by educating and advancing students' all lives. I think it's just a way that we as business people talk about how do you get enough people that are willing to consume what you're offering the way of education and how do you get enough donors to contribute money so you can make the not-for-profit enterprise work. Mm -hmm. this, look, this has been my experience. I mean, I, I came in and um, I, I didn't come in and immediately say, oh, it's all about profit because the university is not about profit. The university is about getting a bunch of students, in Marymount's case, a bunch of students who in many cases are economically and socially disadvantaged and get them a really great education. Now, that requires resources, right? you got to raise money from, from donors. You've got to be able to get uh, people to pay your fees. So fundamentally, there's a business aspect to it. You're providing value, but it's not a business. Yeah. It's values-driven. Well, the, uh, the uh, gen jumping around, I think one mm. of the things to consider that I see all the time in not-for-profits these days is outcomes, right? Yeah. Which is the new label for, I think, to your point earlier, business model. What, what, who gives you money to fuel it? What is the product or service that you are suggesting the not-for-profit play out there? And when people consume that product or service, what is the outcomes, right? And donors want to say, or they certainly want to see, at least in my experience, I hope in, in Marymount's, if I give X dollars, what's going to happen after the dollars are given? And that's the outcomes based. And you're, you're, the consolidation that built at Marymount in uh, Arlington, Virginia. Thank you for that. Seems to be, to me, seems to have a lot of outcomes orientation to it. Well, it is. So... First of all, outcomes are much more relevant these days to everybody yeah. involved in education, not-for-profit uh, activities, because what we've seen over the last 30 years in particular is that as new wealth has been created, much of that wealth is entrepreneurial wealth. Yeah. And a lot of that entrepreneurial wealth, the people have made their own money and want to see that if they're going to provide money, they want to see outcomes. Yeah. You know, 100 years ago, the wealth that was in this country, a lot of it was uh, was generational wealth. And the wealth that wasn't, it was all about noblesse oblige. What was it? Uh, noblesse oblige. Thank you very much. You know, yeah. the idea I'm that you gave money yeah. without strings. And that just isn't the case anymore. So when you're in education now, uh, it's outcome-based. But it's not just outcome-based for the donors. It's also outcome-based for parents and for students. Because exactly. what's happened now is... Employers have said more and more clearly, continue to say, even during this period of time when there's so much premium on trying to find workers, they want people who are ready to go to work 
and have soft skills, meaning not just the education of the classroom, but also understanding how to work. And and those people get jobs, and yeah. the people that don't don't get jobs. But so, here's wait, but so fantastic. What I see, and I'd love to hear your comments on this collision, is that many liberal arts colleges traditionally say they're teaching critical thinking skills, which is a lovely phrase. But the, quote, outcomes, unquote, from that are difficult to ascertain. What I think is fantastic about what Marymount and your team over there are doing is delivering almost like certificates or or a degree that has an implication of applicability to today's marketplace so that person is ready for that job. I think that uh, you've really you – know, so, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're very focused on giving students the right type of education, particularly adult learners and people who are in the workforce. That's why we have – highly salient degrees that are interdisciplinary, whether it's our DBA in business intelligence or cybersecurity degree, it's all applied. But we also have certificates that people can come and, and do four courses and get retrained. Mm-hmm. And the undergraduate, same thing. But what it really comes down to fundamentally is that education is many things. Education is teaching people skills. It's getting them exposure to life. It's the socialization. It's it's learning how to be a citizen. It's lots of different things. And the reason why it's all these different things is because the idea of higher education basically started 800 years ago in places like Bologna and Cambridge and Oxford. And the idea was that you were tra- training people to be part of the intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was a passageway to uh, uh, being part of the upper classes. And that educational aspect, you know, that idea of the transition to the upper classes, it very much uh, flavors how we look at education even today, right? So you've got, you go to university to get a better job. You go to university to assume a better position in society. You go to university because you're marking time before you go to graduate school. A lot of reasons when people go to university. And the biggest challenge right now that I think higher education institutions have is not every institution can be about getting somebody in to uh, uh, the upper classes of society. Not every university can be about technical training. Not every community college can be about technical training. It, it's a, it's a, frankly, it's a mess because we don't talk clearly about issues of class in our but, society, well, and education is really suffering from that. That's a big meta conversation, mm. I, would, I would suggest, at the highest level, which is great to have. I guess from a granular standpoint, it seems like you guys are also laying out the executional level, which is forget the degree itself. I mean, it's it's not about the sheepskin, I would suggest in some ways. It's about certification, preparation, and applicability of who you're pumping out the, the doorway. And that collision between professors who think it's four years for a bachelor's degree or two years for an associate's degree, in some ways you're conflicting with that as well, too. No, right? not necessarily. Because oh, okay. at the end of the day, the way to think about education is it's a two-sided marketplace. One side are employers, other side are students. What's in the middle is education, an educational institution. If an educational institution really wants to market itself as generating graduates that are of a higher quality – you have to have instructors that are schooled in the art at a high level. Right. You know, it's, it's all well and good to say, oh, well, we're going to train students how to do cybersecurity. The reality is, is that if you would have an institution where you have professors that are at the edge of knowledge, that really are learning about, hey, how is AI affecting cybersecurity? How are policies, procedures? In other words, if they're highly educated, but they're highly engaged, then they're going to be better educators. Mm-hmm. So this idea that a lot of universities or professors have that if you run yourself like a business and you're outcome based, you can't really be about education is is not right. 
you you know the best education educational institutions have really smart people that are in the game every day. Yep. And so that's how it that's how it works together. The question ultimately to be resolved is, what are you doing it for? You know, what, what do you what do you want your students to be? Place, What's the point? Where's the point? That's the voice of Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan joins me in the studio here for What's Working in Washington. He's the dean of the business school at Marymount University here in Arlington, Virginia, right in the D.C. area. We'll be back with great conversation with Jonathan, especially about his TechSet program after this break. on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. What's working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Again, great to have in the studio with us Jonathan Aberman, an old friend and the dean of the School of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, also the original host of this show and handed it off to me. Jonathan, once again, great to have you with us. You're welcome. So we're talking, (laughs) you're welcome, America. (laughs) So we're talking about higher education, amongst many other things, because your interest uh, is, your interest uh, groupings are far and wide, but as dean, you must see firsthand the challenge that colleges and universities face in their economic model, i.e., and, and you know, I was a trustee at my alma mater for many years. We would raise the tuition each year a certain percentage, and then we hoped the amount of discount rate we'd have to do off the rate card to collect the money from full-pay students and others that got debt, et cetera, et cetera, mapped against that, that raise in tuition. It hasn't. So colleges keep raising tuition, but basically discounting the amount of money that they collect. This seems like an unsustainable barbell business model. Do you think I'm off base? I don't think you're off base. I think, though, that you're you're generalizing and there are many different flavors. So let's pull back. What is true is that higher education, a bachelor's degree, is still the largest determinant for lifetime earnings. It still is. Even at the current level of cost, it still is. But the problem is that, uh, for various reasons, and some will say it's the availability of student debt, others would say it's professor salaries, administration, everybody's got a theory. But whatever the theory is, the cost of education has gone up exponentially over the last 20 years, in particular. And the net effect of that has been that it's put enormous pressure on families and students to be able to afford it. So what ends up happening is, dependent upon the quality of the institution and what the degree ultimately does for the student, there is more price pressure. And this is something that as a business person you and I are familiar with, that if you have a product that doesn't necessarily get the outcome you want, you're going to want to pay less for it. So what's happening is universities, colleges, community colleges, whatever, all facing this price pressure of people saying, if I'm going to go into debt, 
to pay for this, what's the true value to me? And the result is that universities, just about universally around the country, uh, are doing different things to discount their fees. It's sort of like until recently, nobody paid list price for a car. The challenge ultimately is the internet has changed every industry in the world. As it touches it, it, it drives out the middle because the middle becomes irrelevant and it all becomes about scale mm-hmm. or specialization. The internet came to education in a big way. You you started it in some ways when you helped seed Blackboard, but what we've seen over the last couple of years with COVID is this shift to online. Mm-hmm. So what's happening now is internet has come for education. The middle is getting hollowed out, meaning that unless you have a university that's gonna be really, really special, why go? If I can go to a great online institution, well, they define special either from a premium perception of it could be an ex- like a Yale an or specialized yeah. in a, what I learn or both. Right. It could be either. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I went to this particular institution and I got minted as somebody who should go to Wall Street. I went to Wharton. Mm-hmm. It can be I go to some place that's good value for money, like a state university where I get good education and don't spend a lot of money. It can be a high quality boutique, like a. Uh, like a Babson or hopefully a built here yep. uh, that we're trying to build where somebody says, well, it's not as expensive as going to, say, an Ivy League. It's more expensive than a state school, but the value of the kind of job I get, it's worth the money. And, and you don't learn English literature or French poetry. Oh, sure there. you yeah. do. So, well, well, actually, so, Babson? So, I mean, well, what's not well, the you point? Look, here's my point is that there's still room for liberal arts education yeah. and probably now more than ever because as artificial intelligence in particular makes brute force – application of intellect, something a software does, high-level reasoning, soft skills become more important. So, Oh, absolutely. So I I don't think the issue is liberal arts education, not liberal arts education. I think the issue is how do you take the the great aspects of liberal arts education, like understanding the context in which we live, understanding the aesthetics, understanding how to write, how to communicate. Those things are all going to be hyper-relevant to everybody. And so um, really the challenge is for every higher institution is exactly described. If you don't have something that's fairly priced at a price that people think is fair, you end up discounting because you're chasing the market down. And that's why a lot of universities have a lot of trouble right now. And the term fair, I would suggest, is even not that. It's really the yield or the outcomes. To return to a, a term we discussed in an earlier segment, is it worth borrowing $50,000 from Uncle Sam or a lot of money from the institution that you're going to go to to get a degree that changes your lifetime earning potential graph to the point you made earlier? And is that delta big enough to pay back what the debt you jump into? And we both know that a lot of institutions fail that math. That's exactly right. And bear in mind, though, a couple of things. First of all, there was recently a story uh, or the, the United States just allowed a bunch of students and student loans that they used to pay for a certain not for a certain for-profit college to write off the loans because they got nothing valuable. So there are circumstances where it is worth the money to borrow, to go and hawk, to eat a lot of tuna fish sandwiches to get a degree from university. But that's that's Princeton. Is it true in your mind for other places? Absolutely, mean, clearly your place. You, well, you I, I, mean, I, I think I think it, that every higher inst- higher education institution in this town, uh, just about every one of them that's producing a quality product, it's worth going to. It's okay. just a question of you know, it's, a, it's basically a question of whether it's a fair price. What I mean by fair price is the same education in the back of everybody's mind now is the same thing they have in their minds when they go off to buy a car. 
Mm-hmm. I hate to say, and this is the part that offends professors because it's all about education. I can say, yes, it is about education, but from a consumer standpoint, it's what feels good to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there are people that will happily spend $120,000 a year to go to Stanford mm-hmm. because it is a fair trade because they want to be in Silicon Valley and want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. It's What we need to do is we need to understand as educators, everybody has to be great at education. That's table stakes. Mm-hmm. But you have to present the education in a way where it's fairly delivered and fairly priced, and the experience is what somebody's willing to pay for. So what's been your experience at Marymount in the College of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology in attracting the students who are returning to college, adults that have had some career? What, what are some of the student sectors that you're marketing to or seeing show up at your door? Well, so Marymount is um, an institution that was started in the 50s basically to get people particularly women, out of economic poverty and into the workforce. Mm-hmm. And so it started out as teachers training, interior design, things like that. So it's part of the DNA. So a significant percentage of our students are, are going to be people on Pell Grants, people who are economic disadvantaged, minorities, international students, and so forth, on undergraduate. And what we're seeing is that as a Hispanic serving institution, as a private institution, we're attracting people who want to be part of an organization or a university where they'll feel comfortable. Yep. On the graduate side, we're seeing pretty we're seeing significant growth in applications over last year. I think we're up 30, 40% right now. Congratulations. Well, thank you, but it's because on the graduate side, we're focusing on we're focusing on adult learners. Mm-hmm. You know, we're focusing on people who are in the game who are working and want to upskill themselves. So right. whether it is a doctorate degree where they're taking their experience in cybersecurity and and putting research against it or business or an MBA that has a high level of practicality, it's it's a different marketplace. And so what I think is that here in my college, we see the market and we're providing something valuable for both types of student customers. And I, but, but undergrads are full-time, but most of your uh, grad students are – well, everybody's oh. working. Pretty much everybody's working. Yeah. Oh, so they have a full, they have a job, and yeah. they're coming. Okay, great. We do. I mean, we do, we we have full time programs. If somebody wants to get in and out in an MBA in a, in a year, they can, mm-hmm. or they can do their program over a couple of years. My point is to say, you asked me about education. We started with discounting. Yeah. All I can tell you is that I think that every dean, every university president, worth their weight in salt right now, is asking themselves, what are we providing? We're providing a great. A great experience. Well, we have great dorms. We have great uh, collegiate experience. Great. There's value in that. You know, there's value in that. Uh, am I providing uh, great education? Am I providing overseas? Am I just providing good technical education? What am I providing? Mm-hmm. And making sure that the faculty is clear on what they're doing, understanding that they have to be excellent, understanding that the students need to know what the outcome is. Employers need to know what's going to come out of the system, and you have to price it fairly. Mm-hmm. And if you do those things, it's sustainable. And if you don't do those things, the Internet is going to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And a lot of, frankly, a lot of universities are going to go out of business over the next five to ten years because the market has changed forever. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to change. Well, let's. So we talk business model. That's how we started this conversation. And once again, we're really happy to have with us Jonathan Aberman. Jonathan is an old friend and actually the original host of this show. Now the dean at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, the School of Business Innovation, Leadership, and Technology. Built. All that's missing is you, as our producer Tracy Madigan, Madigan so uh, effortlessly dreamed up as a great marketing phrase. And uh, I think she'll license it to you for a for a small fee. Very means to be seen, of course. Um, but but the idea of of students being a part of the experience, so so the students you hang out with, mm-hmm. this and please correct me, but but probably is a challenge you face every day. I mean, if you go to 
you go to Harvard, you get the Harvard Yale game. You get to hang out with other people in Harvard. There's sort of a self, this sort of self fulfilling prophecy that you're hanging out with smart people because they all got in. Or that can be true at any college, even one that's way less competitive. You're hanging out as an undergrad with people that you make lifetime friends with and stuff. In some of these, in some of these organizations or programs that you're operating, how important do you see the students being for each other? Well, so number one, we we identified something. You just basically came back to my argument about class. Yeah. Well, there's an aspect of filtering, and if you get into a, a Yale or a Harvard, basically, you're sort of a made woman, made man. Yeah. You're, you're in a certain social class. So they want you to believe. Well, yeah. so they want you to believe, but the institutions uh, trade on that to a certain extent. Yep. Look, at the end of the day, the two big determinants for how well a student experience goes is the quality instruction and the students. And there are a lot of different reasons why uh, being around other students can be meaningful. It can be it can be a class signaling thing, or it can be being with people who are going to be enriching. So um, one of the things that we really like about uh, our student body is because it's so diverse, people are comfortable coming, right? It, it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. It's like I, there are other people look like me in the faculty, look like me, so I'm comfortable. Yep. And I think that, uh, again, it's very important that institution has clarity. Birds of a feather flock together. Exactly. So let's talk about a specific program. I know we mentioned it the last time we were together, which is TechSet. Well, TechSet is a program that helps students get soft skills so they're able to go to work. And we started it Last uh, year, earlier in the year, it's gone exceptionally well. We are generating students who know what it means to go to work. Um, they're disadvantaged students. They're students who have not been exposed to working in tech companies. We just finished the first cohort, and we had 45 students, and a substantial majority of them got summer jobs. And we're hoping to continue it. But again, it's an ed- it's an example of a higher education institution saying, all right, where's our market? Yeah. Right? And our market are students that first-generation college students so it, it's worked really well. I would encourage people, if you've got a student in a local university or you're interested as an employer in getting great students, check out techsetva.com. Excellent. Jonathan Aberman, we always ask our guests on this show at the end if they could wave a magic wand as king of the planet or queen of the planet, depending upon the gender of our visitor. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you start happening and what would you stop happening? Well, based upon the conversation we've had today, I would say the number one thing is we should have an honest discussion in this country about class. Yeah. Because if we were honest about class, uh, it would disable a lot of current conversations we're having around race and gender that are basically being used to separate us, just to be really meta. Wow. Anything that you would stop having or stop happening? Oh, boy. You and I have been in the media industry for so long. If we could get into a situation where there was some sort of way to demonstrably and objectively define truth again, I'd be all about that. It's so funny you said that. I just gave a speech at my business school reunion where I, I bemoaned the lack of a Walter Cronkite. And as innocent as it may sound, we think not that many years ago when you and I turned off Walter at 7 p.m. or 7.30 p.m., I guess, in the East Coast, we felt we had actually heard the truth. Yep. And that's the way it is. Let's finish with that here on What's Working in Washington. Our guest, Jonathan Averman, Dean of the School of Business, Innovation, Technology, and Leadership at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thanks. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.